This podcast is made possible by the generosity of supporting members. Please visit dharmaocean.org to learn more about becoming a supporting member. You are listening to the Dharma Ocean Podcast. Here, in the second part of the opening keynote from Reggie and Caroline's weekend program on the journey of consort relationship, Reggie discusses the somatic experience of beholding one's beloved from the empty, open state of being that is free from concepts, agendas, and territoriality. This talk was given in 2017 at a weekend program held at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, called Awakening Through Relationship, the Tantric Consort. Reggie offers more teachings and practices on the consort journey in The Tantric Consort, a four-part video course produced by Sounds True. So, I think our basic uh, situation in this uh, wonderful, um, very puzzling and weird lineage of Chogyam Trungpa that we're all part of, whether we're part of Naropa or the Dharma Ocean or Shambhal International, you know, there are a lot of wonderful rivers that flow out of that strange upland backwater Tibetan sea that he was part of. Um, his main thing is we have to figure out ways to corner ourselves into finding things out. And because the human ego never wants, it, it wants more information, you know, more information get on the internet, enhance our point of view, develop our skills, improve our lifestyle. We call that horizontal transformation. You know, we become bigger and better versions of ourselves. But what doesn't happen is what he called vertical transformation, which is a shift in our existential state of being. Most of us in the modern world are not uh, aware of the fact that the world we live in and the, the world that we are is only uh, the beginning. So he was the world's leading expert in cornering us into finding out things. And uh, one of his techniques was called Naropa University. <laughs> you come here and you begin studying, and all of a sudden, it's not what you expected. On some days, it's your worst nightmare. On other days, it's your deepest dream. And it's very confusing, actually. But the thing is, you did sign up, you are taking courses, and you are cornered. Another uh, one of his things was meditation practice. Usually, first, Caroline might sit down and explain, we're going to do this meditation practice, and here's what's going to happen, and here's how it's going to be, and then we do the practice. 
But his approach was, oh no, that's way too easy. We're going to do the practice first. We're going to drop you into the big bubbling cauldron and we'll talk about it later. The very first uh, year that I knew him, which was 1970, when he had come to this country, he'd say, okay, time to meditate. This was at the Tale of the Tiger in Barnett, Vermont. Time to meditate. So we had this attic upstairs, and he goes, okay, uh, you guys go up and sit for three hours. And we go, Rimshe, what are we supposed to do? And he said, you'll figure it out. And if you can imagine what it's like when you don't know how to meditate, you don't have no idea, and um, plus you're probably hungover, <laughs> and you probably didn't get any sleep. It was, it was very painful, it was very difficult. But his thing was, let's drop ourselves into the big bubbling cauldron of reality and he had so much trust in, in his students and in our mind, in our awareness, in our intelligence, that uh, the only problem was we think, we thought we knew what was going on, and he was happy to show us that we actually didn't. I had a friend uh, who lives in Boulder now, who never meditated in his life, and Rimshe sent him into, I think, a three or four month solitary retreat. And as far as I know, gave him no instructions whatsoever. And the thing was, he's never been the same. <laughs> but he connected. He connected. He connected with something. And the reason I bring these examples up is, I think the, in this lineage, as Caroline mentioned, you know, Vajrayana Buddhism is really interesting because it really sees this weird, powerful, incredibly neurotic thing that happens between intimate partners as the place. It is the place. It is the opportunity. And one thing, you know, I think um, it could be a theme of this, you know, our, our program this weekend, that every relationship is workable no matter how horrible and how insane and how dead it may seem. And, you know, many of us, the longer we go along, the more horrible and insane and dead it does seem. But that's very workable. That's a very good situation from the Vajrayana point of view. That's ideal. One of the key points in Vajrayana Buddhism is, um, it's really, as Caroline mentioned, this emphasis on the body. And that um, our human body is, it's the arena of practice, and it's what you're working with. You're not working with your conceptual mind in Vajrayana at all. You don't work with it at all. The conceptual mind um, is not, it's not useful except in a very peripheral way. And I wanted to explain that because that lies behind, you know, in order for us to understand why intimate relationships would be such a powerful crucible of spiritual practice, we need to understand this somatic thing. We have a view of our body 
uh, as human beings, pretty much everything we experience is a conceptualized version of experience. It's not experience itself. This has been known in our culture certainly very, very well, if you know William Blake at all, um, the very first romantic. His thing was, you know, people live in this conceptual world and they have no idea what experience really is. And he says this thing, you know, if you can peel away what you think about perception, cleanse the doors of perception, then you realize that each moment of life is actually a gate to infinity. And that's very much the tantric point of view. But the problem is we, as human beings, live in a conceptualized universe. And unfortunately, this very human body of ours, we also have a conceptualized version of that. And from the tantric point of view, we have no contact with our actual body. We have no experiential contact with our actual body. And it doesn't matter what we've been through how many drugs we've taken, um, how many illnesses we have had. It doesn't matter if we're a dancer or somatic, uh, you know, body work or whatever. The human default is to have a very filtered, very limited left brain version of our body. So all of the methods in Vajrayana Buddhism, and I know this will run against what your impression may be if you study Tibetan Buddhism at all, it seems very mental. There are all kinds of visualizations and all kinds of liturgies and all kinds of things you have to memorize, um, mantras you have to do, but the bottom line in the Vajrayana is that all of their techniques are trying to get us to tap into the non-conceptual experience of our body. And what is that? What happens when we do that? So, what we're trying to do is, uh, the body itself is a domain of wakefulness for Vajrayana Buddhism. There's an inherent wakefulness, enlightenment actually, that is going on in the body. There is a substrate that is running along underneath all of our thinking and um, all the things we think we're experiencing, all of the ups and downs, all of the pain and pleasure, all of the ambition, all of the meltdowns and uh, neurotic upheavals, all the triggering, all the uh, activation that makes up most of our life. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, most of our life is, it's very dramatic. And it's not fun. It's painful. And, you know, our intimate relationships, we, want to, we don't want anyone to find out what actually goes on there. <laughs> because it's so embarrassing, it's so horrifying. Underneath, there is a substrate of experience that is the basic nature of the body. It's called the natural state. And the, you know, purpose of practice, and, you know, we're going to do a lot of that this weekend, is to tap into it and see it for ourselves and see that um, when we set aside the thinking mind and uh, somatic practices are a way of setting aside the thinking mind and all of its processing and judging and we begin to view from within the body which is called in neurobiology it's called interoception it means you're not seeing the body from the viewpoint 
of your judgment and your labeling and your conceptualizing, you're seeing the body from the viewpoint of itself. When we do that, we realize that underneath all the debris of our conditioned mind, there is a deep, deep, deep ocean of stillness. It's open, it's incredibly peaceful, it's empty, there isn't anything in it, it feels vast. And when we touch that in ourselves, we truly are touching a space that is standing outside of time. That experience of the body doesn't occur within time or within the coordinates of space. If you um, have read Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight, here is a, uh, she's a Harvard neuroscientist who had a massive left brain stroke, meaning the left brain thinking mind was completely knocked out. And she said during the period of time, right after the stroke, for days, even weeks, she experienced her body as being empty and endless. That her body, the, the domain of this body of hers was the ends of the universe. It's very, very beautiful. It's a, it's a field report. And within that she touched Everything in the universe was available to her from that point of view. And she wasn't spaced out, she wasn't dissociated because when her caregivers came to her, she was able to, she fully received all of them. And she later talked about the different caregivers and some of them were this way and some were sensitive and some were totally checked out and uh, some were mean and some really got her. This was, uh, this is very, very helpful for us because it shows us what is possible through the practices. You know, we don't... Um, some people have read the book and said, I can't wait to have a stroke. <laughs> and, you know, frankly, um, it's made me look at people who have Alzheimer's disease in a different way. And to realize that there's something going on there. These people are not gone. They're just not here in the way we are used to being here. They are some, there's some big thing going on with them. So, you know, the point of Vajrayana is to connect us in an experiential way with that substrate. And what they call, in Buddhism, they call it the natural state, they call it the immeasurable expanse, they call it the, the true self, they call it the Dharmakaya, you know, there are all kinds of terms. But the important point for Vajrayana is that this experience has to be real for us. We have to touch it and taste it. And a very interesting thing happens when we do, which is that it disconfirms the viewpoint of our ego. The ego always feels limited. When we touch that space, we realize in the full depth of our being, there is no limitation. We are not limited. Also, the ego feels a little bit, you know, it's like, this is me, you know, this is who I am, this is my narrative, this is my story, 
you know, I'm a victim, I'm, uh, I'm a hero, whatever your story is. But in the deeper space of the substrate, the experientially what we feel is, wait a minute, this is me. This is me. Even though it isn't anything or it's everything, paradoxically we feel this is truly me. And what that does is it takes the pressure off the ego thing. It takes the pressure off. We still do it. But there's something in us that knows that that depth of freedom is available to us right now. And that vastness and that openness and the purity of our own awareness is right here. It's available. And it's my home. It's who I am. So this is what we call the ground or the basis of the consort relationship is this experience of our fundamental nature. If we try to conduct an intimate relationship in terms of the, uh, from an ego point of view, then everything is negotiation. And uh, everything is a prenuptial agreement. You know, I'm not going to agree to anything unless you agree to something. And it's very complicated, as you know. We get very complicated in our relationships. And I have all this uh, history and all these, like, resentments. You know, all these times you hurt me and you didn't see me. And meantime, the other person is, you know, has exactly the same experience about us. And, you know, there isn't any real openness. It gets very claustrophobic. You get to a point where nobody can see anybody, nobody can hear anybody, and nobody even gives a shit about the other person. You don't really care. It's like, get me out of here. I can't get out. You know, I can't afford to get divorced, but I can't stand this. Is anybody relating to anything? <laughs> but the tantric approach is, when we are experientially connecting with the empty, open, um, very vast ground of who we are as a person, experientially, we're not talking theory here, then when you look at the other person, you see something different. You, you're, and it isn't you that's seeing them, it's not your ego, it's your, what are you going to call it? It's, it's the intelligence that is underneath everything in you. And we'll be doing some practices around this this weekend. You behold the other person. You know, we don't talk about seeing the other person, we talk about beholding. And somehow within, when you're resting in that empty, open, free state, and there's nothing at stake for you in that state, because everything is there, then you can receive the other person in their totality and you can see things that you didn't want to see, you know, wonderful things about them. And you can see your relationship. But it's not you that's seeing it. That's the paradoxical thing. There is an intelligence that is beholding the actuality of these two people and all of their history and all of their, what they've been through and why they're here and why they're having such a hard time. There's something in you, there's some depth that you're touching that sees that and you realize how it is and why it is and you also reconnect with what you love about them 
the experience of falling in love in our culture these days uh, is often dissed. You know, people put it down. But from the Tantra point of view, falling in love is, as Caroline mentioned, one of the greatest experiences that we can ever go through in human life. Because what happens from the tantric point of view when we fall in love is that we see the other person actually as they are. There is something about the connection that we have with this particular person where it shatters everything that we think. And we see them in the fullness of their beauty, their, uh, the wonder of who they are, how unique they are, and the a feeling on our side, and this is a tantric point of view, you know, a lot of psychologists aren't going to you know, necessarily go along with this. From the tantric point of view, there is something, again, that's part of this uh, substrate, it's part of this open, empty awareness of ours, this fundamental nature that loves. And it loves unconditionally, and it loves infinitely. And when we touch that part of ourselves, when, we're, when some person triggers that part of ourself, it is, it is, it's the awakened love and compassion and tenderness and loving kindness of our own awakened state that beholds the other person and their beauty and their perfection. And our poor little ego is completely swept away. And we are so happy about it. It is so amazing, and it's so painful, but it's so poignant. You know, the, the thought of not being able to be with them is it's completely unbearable. And then when we are with them, it's completely unbearable. <laughs> you know, from the tantric point of view, that's a revelation. You know, that's not a psychological mistake, which is the way it's pre often presented in, in the literature. It's like some kind of immature, you know, like 14-year-old thing. But from the tantric point of view, it's a revelation of the true nature of the other person and of how much, when we are truly open, how much we love. So that, in a way, sets us up. It's a kind of a setup, because uh, now what are we going to do? We've had this ex experience with this other person. And part of that experience, interestingly enough, is, you know, those of you who have been through it or uh, have been through it or are going through it, part of that experience, there's an invitation in that state, an invitation. And there's an inspiration to make a journey with this other person. And we, we want to do it. We want to make the journey. You know, we could say the ego at that point is in a, an altered state. The ego is in an altered state because something that later on will become the order of the day in our relationship to the world, because that's where we're going, has happened to me now with this other person. download more of Reggie's teachings, find out about upcoming retreats, and to explore a variety of audio listening guides to assist you on your spiritual journey, please visit dharmaocean.org.
Our music is by Jeff Beale and Nawang Ketchog from the album Tibet Cry of the Snow Lion. <laughs>